0: church. It is time to take your copy of the Word of God and locate the book of Nahum. Say who? (laughs) Yeah, Nahum. And what we're doing is we're walking through the 12 minor prophets. This is minor prophet number 7. Okay, we've been through 6, and we've learned some major promises from God. Let's do a little review here of the major promises we've learned, for example, from Hosea. We learn the promise that God's love is never less than relentless. In the book of Joel, we learn that the day of the Lord is nearer today than any other day. That was the promise we focused on in Joel. In Amos, uh, we reminded the promise that if we seek the Lord, we will live. Isn't that good news, church? Uh, Obadiah, the, the promise is God helps the humble. Uh, in Jonah, we were reminded that God responds to repentant hearts. And then in Micah last week, we learned that no thing, no one, and no other God is like our God. Those are some great promises that people need to hear. And so you need to use these towels, these 12th man towels, take them wherever you go. When people say, what's that about? Tell them. Man, share with them. Hey, we're learning some promises of God uh, that every single person needs to hear. Today we're going to look at Nahum and the seventh promise, major promise of God uh, from The prophet Nahum. The year was 1993. Uh, I was 19 years old. My mother co-signed for me to get a brand new uh, Chevrolet 1500 stepside pickup truck. And the thing about this truck was around the Jackson, Mississippi area, it was known as the Hudat truck. It was a truck that I had taken the sticker off the tailgate and put a big HUDAT sticker on it. My license plate was personalized HUDAT. It was a black and tan uh, Saints vehicle, I guess you could say. New Orleans Saints fans' dream vehicle. I think I've got a picture with me. Uh, there's me in the truck. That's 26 years ago and about 100 pounds ago. Uh, that's me and that's the truck. You can't see the back of it, but Tanya even saw this truck around town before she met me. Now the thing about this truck, when I bought it, I said, well I got to get I want to get the cheapest price I can get. So I knew if you get a standard rather than an automatic, it's about $1,500 cheaper. The only problem was I didn't know how to drive a standard. I had never driven a standard. So what's the best way to learn how to drive a standard? You go buy one. So that's when the first time me ever driving one was driving that off the lot. Probably not the safest, smartest decision, uh, but I had to save some money. When we come to the book of Nahum, I've got to tell you, I have never sat under the preaching of a sermon from this book. So what do you do? As a pastor, if you've never sat under the preaching of a sermon from the book of Nahum, you preach the book of Nahum. So that's what we're doing today. I'm kind of excited to see what I have to say about Nahum today. I've never heard it before. Kind of excited to see what God has to say to us through this minor prophet. So today, we're in Nahum, and we're going to focus on this idea of the avenger prophet. That God is the avenger God, and Nahum is the avenger prophet that tells us about the greatness and goodness of our God. And so, I want you to look at Nahum 1, verse 1, 2, and 3. I'll read these three verses uh, to get us launched into the message today. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now I don't imagine that any of you have chosen Nahum chapter one, uh, verse two, to be your life verse. Have you? probably not keep going here verse 3 the lord is slow to anger and great in power and the lord will by no means clear the guilty so here's our here's our big idea the main truth the takeaway as i call it from nahum and it's simply this god will clear the not guilty but not the guilty God will clear the not guilty, but not the guilty. And I don't, again, I don't want you to take my word for it. I'm going to walk you through. We're going to walk through this prophet today, and I want to give you five assurances that you can know that God will clear the not guilty. And we can know that as assuredly as we know that he will not clear the guilty. We can know he will clear the not guilty. So here's the first assurance that we can lean on. Number one, God is far from being a wimpy God. Well church, I think sometimes we think we serve a weak and wimpy God, right? We focus on our issues and our problems and our our struggles and and we don't focus on God. Isn't He bigger than those? Isn't He greater than those? He's not He's not a wimp. God's not a wimp. And so here's how Nahum paints this picture for us, that God is far from being a wimpy God. Look at verse 1, we're told this is an oracle uh, concerning Nineveh. So we know exactly who's writing it, Nahum. We know exactly who it's written to, Nineveh. You've heard of Nineveh, haven't you? From Jonah, you remember Nineveh and Jonah? Well, this is a sequel, okay, to Nineveh. Uh, Really, it's a sequel to Jonah. You can call this the book of Nineveh if you'd like. It's all about uh, what's going to happen to Nineveh. Uh, of course, the subject is our great and mighty God, but it is the sequel. How many of you like sequels? How many of you are looking forward to uh, the sequel to Top Gun or Frozen? Or <laughs> I don't know why you'd look forward to Frozen, but maybe you are. I'm still waiting on the Sherlock Holmes 3 movie to come out. I've been waiting for 10 years for that movie to come out. I guess it never will. We like sequels, and to wait 10, 20 years seems like a long time to wait for a sequel. But this sequel is a hundred years. One hundred years has passed from the time of Jonah's day to the time of Nahum's day. A hundred years. And so we come on the scene with this sequel for Nineveh. Now you remember in Jonah's day, God relented and Nineveh was spared. Right, Everybody in Nineveh believed God in Jonah's day From the king to the chick-fil-a cow Everybody believed God in Jonah's day In Nahum's day it's going to be a little different And we'll see that momentarily So this is an oracle, a woe, a pronouncement of judgment concerning Nineveh And notice how he paints this picture Uh, First of all we need to know that Nineveh was the powerhouse of the day, the dominant powerhouse. I'm telling you, they were brutal, wicked, and evil. A a tyrant were the kings. They were just all tyrants. In fact, I could go into detail specifically and tell you the savagery of their torture on people, but you would lose your appetite. So I'm going to spare you that. Okay, but this is what I will tell you, and maybe this will help us get our head around how wicked, vile, and brutal these Ninevites were. One scholar wrote this about this time period. He said that the eight successive kings leading up to the time of Nahum, eight successive kings, eight kings in a row, was like eight Hitlers in a row. That's brutal, is it not? Can you imagine? Not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but eight Hitlers in a row. I mean, that's what Nineveh was known for, just dominating everybody, just a dominant world power. And so to think it would be outlandish, out of bounds, and and, and outrageous to think that Nineveh would ever fall or be destroyed. They're the powerhouse, and here comes Nathan. And he's preaching a message of destruction to the Ninevites. And people looked at him and said, he must be out to lunch. I mean, what's he talking about? This is the powerhouse. They're not going to fall. Man, what a great message for our country today, for America. So here comes Nahum. He is outmatched. And weighing in at three chapters and 47 verses and punching well above his weight class comes the book of Nahum to remind us that our God is not a wimpy God, that he is far from being a wimpy God. And here's how Nahum paints this picture. Look at verse 2. The Lord is a jealous. Somebody say, jealous. He's not jealous of something or someone. He's jealous for you. He wants your worship. He wants because he's worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise. He's the creator, and he owns everything. It all belongs to him. See, we get jealous because we want what some people have that we don't have, and we don't want what we want for other people to have that. and So we get jealous of things, but God is jealous for us. He wants our worship, and he's worthy of it. And, and, and we were born for the simple purpose to be born again and worship Him. That's why we're here. And so God is jealous for us. So we see He's jealous. And also, He's an avenging God. Listen, God's vengeance is not the same as revenge. Okay? Those are different. God is avenging God, meaning that God avenges us. And he takes vengeance on his enemies. For those that are in Christ, God is our avenger. He fights our battles. Christ defeated death, sin, the grave through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so he is our avenger. We are the beneficiaries of the avenger. But he takes vengeance on his enemies. Also, we learn that he's a wrathful God. That just simply highlights the holiness of God. See, God is holy. He cannot coexist with sin. So he's not wrathful because he's mad or because he's mean or because he's out to get you. He is a wrathful God because he is a just God. And he has to deal with sin in that way. His holiness will not allow him to just look past sin. He is wrathful because he is holy. And let's not fall in the trap and think, okay, the Old Testament is all about wrath and the New Testament's all about mercy and salvation. That the Old Testament only deals with wrath and judgment and the New Testament only deals with mercy and and grace and salvation. That's not true. There's wrath all over the New Testament. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that we were children of wrath like the rest of all mankind but God being rich in mercy. John 3, the Bible says, whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Listen to this, church, in Revelation 6, 16. Fall on us and hide, from, uh, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Listen, but the, um, for the day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? We need to know that the wrath of God is not just in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's in the New Testament. Why? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He's just, he's holy, he's graceful. Yes, he's merciful, yes, but he's also wrathful and avenging and jealous. He is great in power and mighty. Tim Keller said it this way, If you don't believe in the wrath of God, then the gospel will not thrill you or move you. Think about that. If you don't believe in the wrath of God, then the gospel will never move you and never thrill you. If you're not moved by the gospel, if the gospel doesn't give you any thrill whatsoever, then perhaps you have just dismissed God's wrath altogether. Perhaps you've tried to erase the ultimate wrath, which is hell. But we can't do that. We cannot erase hell. We must tell people and point them to the only one who can assure them they'll escape hell. We are not to dismiss hell. We are to point people to the only one who can assure they will miss hell. We cannot discount God's wrath and God's holiness. There's nothing thrilling about that. What is thrilling about universalism that teaches everybody goes to heaven in the end anyway? No matter what you believe. What is thrilling about God saying on that last day, okay, y'all just come on in too? What's thrilling about that? No, what is thrilling is we have been delivered from the domain of darkness. And we've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Ladies and gentlemen, that's thrilling. There's nothing thrilling about just, okay, in the end, everybody's getting in anyway. I mean, what? Our God is so much greater than that. Now, yes, he desires no man to perish. He desires everybody to come to repentance. But just know that his wrath points to his holiness. And, and look at verse 3. Listen to this. The, the, the Lord is slow to anger. Praise God he's slow to anger. It's been a hundred years that he's been giving them time and time and time again to repent. And though he's slow in anger, he's great in power. Right? And so listen to the balance. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Okay? His way is, is, is in the whirlwind and, and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Next time you look up at the sky, just think, man, those clouds are the dust of my Lord's feet. Well, that'll change your perspective quickly. goes on to say he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. Think about the Egypt being delivered, or the Israelites being delivered from Egyptian slavery and through the Red Sea. That's a, that's a picture of that. Bashan and Carmel wither. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel, but if you've ever gone to Israel and, and, and gone to Mount Carmel, I'm telling you something, wow. And to think that that'll just wither with one word from God, that that just blows your mind. And that's exactly why, because our God is all-powerful and almighty. The bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Listen, our God is not a wimpy God. He is a strong and mighty God. And here's what we need to understand. God doesn't lose his temper, right? Aren't you glad that God doesn't have emotional outbursts? He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't blow his top. He doesn't blow a fuse. He doesn't go off the deep end. He doesn't go ballistic. He, 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 is, he, is not, he doesn't have emotional outbursts. We have several judges in our church, and a judge will tell you, that in order to sit on the bench, you've got to have some type of judicial temperament. You can't be crazy and emotional and sit on the bench. Who wants a judge like that? God is not a judge like that. (laughs) He is long-suffering. He is just, yes, but also merciful and great and mighty and powerful. And the Bible says in verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Can I just give you the non-politically correct answer and say no one? No one can stand. In his indignation. Church, we need to know that our God is not a wimp. You know, we've got this ongoing issue in the American church where in any church that you go into, there are more women in church than there are men. And part of that is our fault. And I'm pointing to me. Because we preach sermon series on relationships. And those are important, right? Sure. But what if we preached a series on the divine warrior king? Right? What what would a man respond to, an unchurched lost man, would he respond to a series on relationships or one on a divine warrior king? He would probably respond more to the warrior king, right? That's who our God is. Jesus is a warrior king. Listen, as one pastor in our city has said this before, and I'm going to quote him. I love this quote You don't tug on Superman's cape, right? (laughs) God is a mighty God, He's not a wimp. He's a mighty God, and we're at war, and God needs warriors, and we're it, church. Tag, you're it. You and I are it. And you can read about this battle in Revelation 19. It just blows. I mean, you need to write this reference down Revelation 19 11 uh, through 16. Well, go, just go all the way through the end of the. Just, through the end of the chapter, verse 21, and just read about. We don't have time to read it this morning, but Revelation 19 is the battle of Armageddon. You talk about a God being a mighty God. He wipes out the nations with just a spoken word. He is a warrior king. Remember what God said to Moses? Is the Lord's arm shortened, right? Is there anything that God can't do, Moses? <laughs> Dr. Ronnie Floyd said it this way We have 47,500 Southern Baptist churches. In the SBC, 47,500 churches. That that number is larger than all the Starbucks, McDonald's, and, and, and Subway's combined. I mean, what an army that is. And so many of them are asleep. Let's not be one of these churches that are asleep. Let's wield the weapon of the Word of God. Let's read it. Let's engage it. Let's memorize it. Let's journal through it. Let's pray it. Let's declare it. Let's share it. Let's live it. Let's wield the weapon that God has given us. Because, listen, we are at war, and we have a warrior king, and our God is not a wimpy God. Amen? Here's a second truth or assurance that we can know that God will clear the not guilty, but not the guilty. Number two. got to move quickly here, church. Number two. Uh, Verse 7 through 14, God is not far from us. Amen? You know how we know God's not far from us? Because he came down to us. He's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. You look to the cross and there you'll find God. If you want to know who God is, what God is like, the attributes of God, all you have to look to is Jesus. That's who our God is. Jesus. So he's not far from you. You can read all about him right here in the Gospels. He's not far from us. So look what it says in verse 7. The Lord is good. Isn't that a good place to put that? You've heard the prayer, God is great, God is good. You ever heard of that prayer? A simple prayer, right? But man, it's power packed with theology, isn't it? God is great, and at the same time, God is good. Why is God good? Here's what we're told why he's good in verse 7. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. In Christ, even when you face trouble... You don't have to be trouble. That's good news, because our Lord is good. And he knows those who take refuge in him. He is our refuge. He is our salvation. So that's good news, right? I mean, that's why he's good, for salvation and for our stronghold in times of trouble. And then he goes on to say this, does Nahum. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. Did y'all hear that? (laughs) Let me translate that into our day. In Christ, to, to bring an adversary to a complete end, let me tell you what that means. In Christ, uh, you and I have experienced uh, the benefit of what Jesus has done. Jesus' death put death to death. He brought death to a complete end. Because our adversary, our enemy is death. Because death without Christ leads to... Eternity without him. Now, death with Christ leads to something completely different. Life everlasting. And Jesus says, you'll never die if you're in me. So, we know that he will bring it to a complete and utter end. And will pursue his enemies into darkness. What, why do you plot against the Lord? I mean, what are you, you going to plot against him? What, how are you going to stand? What are you going to plot? Hey, good luck. Good luck with that, right? Good luck. He'll make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Look at verse 13. This is good news, church. This means that God is not far from us. Look at this. And I now, and now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. Think about the yoke of sin that you're carrying right now. Think about the, the, the enslavement that sin has you in, and those bonds that God's going to burst open and break that yoke and set you free. Why? Because he's not far from us, he is among us and not far from us. Us. He is among us in Christ. And we all have to deal with this cancer called sin. Friday, Tanya and I went to a survivorship symposium, a cancer survivorship, and there were cancer patients there. And only those that are dealing with her type of cancer that were there. I mean, why else would you be there? Right? That only dealt with that particular cancer and those particular survivors. But the truth is, we all have the cancer of sin. Amen? <laughs> all of us do. And it, 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 you can't put a Band-Aid over it. It has to be removed. And the one who removes it is Christ. Why? He's not far from us. He's come down to us. Somebody say praise God. Amen. And somebody say amen. amen. Number three. Here we go. Boy, this one's good. Uh, this one's going to get on your toes a little bit, but that's okay. God's been on mine all week. Will you give me a little bit of a break, please, and take some of this heat for me? Can you do that, church? All right, let, let's look at the third one. Every generation is far from God. Every single generation is far from God. In chapter 2, uh, what is painted here is invaders invading Nineveh. That's what plunderers are plundering Nineveh. In other words, the one who slaughtered everybody, Nineveh, is now being slaughtered. I mean, it's a bloodbath. To put it frankly, it's brutal. And so if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, we, we understand that every single generation is far from God. How can we say that? Uh, look at chapter 2, verse 1. The scatterer has come against you, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your... In other words, God's saying, Nineveh, get ready. Okay? You need to dress for battle and get ready. Now, this isn't because they're on God's team. This is because God has made war against them. That's not a place you want to be at. Where you're readying yourself to face the wrath of God. And that's what God tells them. Get ready. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. Verse 3 is the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. You see these invaders just storming Nineveh. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro uh, through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. They siege. Uh, The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves uh, and beating their breasts. Look at verse 8. Nineveh is like a pool. Listen to this. Whose waters run away. And here's what Nineveh does. Nineveh says, surrender. We surrender. We surrender. Halt. Halt. And look at verse 8. But none turns back. I mean, they're being, they're being massacred. Those that were doing the massacring are now being massacred. And they plunder the silver. They plunder the gold. Verse 9. There's no end of the treasure or of the wrath or the wealth of all precious things. Let me say something to you. On the day of wrath... Your wealth and my wealth is not going to matter. They are plundered. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish in all the loins. All faces grow pale. Somebody say all. All. That means everybody. So think about this. hundred years ago in Nineveh, when Jonah preached, everybody believed God. The the entire, everybody believed God. In Nahum's day, when, when God's word is preached, nobody believes God. Nobody. And every one of them are destroyed. Every one of them is put to death. Every one of them is gone by the wayside. All their faces grow pale and they are destroyed. And who's doing this? Well, look at verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. That is not a place you want to be. And I will burn your church in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. We no longer hear anything from Nineveh, do we? Hello? Do, do we ever hear anything about Nineveh? So I believe verse 13 came to pass. Listen, God's word is going to come to pass. We don't hear anything about it. You won't see Nineveh in the Olympics. They're not there. They're gone forever. So here's a great principle for you and for me. Here it is. Students and children. We got any students in the room? Can y'all raise your hand? Students, college, middle, high, children, raise your hand. If you don't raise your hand, I'm going to make you stand up. So raise your hand. All right, hands up. There we go. Hands are high. All right, let me say something to you guys, okay? Listen to me very carefully. You had a 100-year gap in these two generations, okay? Let let me say this to you children, students, y'all listen to me. You cannot, hear me now, you cannot ride on the coattails of your parents' faith. You can't. You have to own your own faith. You have to make a decision in your heart to trust Christ as your personal saviour. You you can't rely on grandma's faith or grandpa's faith or ride the coattails of mom and daddy's faith. That doesn't work with God. One generation of Nineveh, he relented as they repented. The next generation did not repent, so he did not relent. And church, let me say this to all of us. We cannot, we, we, we need to hear this, church. We cannot, we must not, we cannot live on yesterday's revival we can't live on yesterday's faith or belief or repentance we can't that's why today is a day of salvation we can't live on yesterday's revival see this whole idea of faith it's not it's not transferred like the color of your eyes is transferred from your parents to you faith is not transferred that way you have to open your heart and trust Christ as your Savior. So every generation, every single generation is far from God. Number, number four, I think it is. I've lost count here. Yeah, number four. God fights for us and not against us. Chapter three. I'm not going to read chapter three. I'll just tell you this about chapter three. Uh, this is the the bloodbath really highlighted here. I mean, you can read. Early on here, there's talk of corpses and dead bodies without end. They stumble over the dead bodies. I mean, people just dying everywhere. And in verse 5, we see who's responsible. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I'll make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. And then in verse 8, he does something very interesting. He gives an illustration of Thebes. Now, Thebes was a nation that Nineveh destroyed. And now God is saying, what happened to Thebes? What you did to Thebes is now going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you. And so he gives that illustration. And then look at verse 14 again. Draw water for the siege. In other words, prepare yourselves for battle. And then over to verse 19. Quickly look at 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you, what does it say, church? What do they do? They clap their hands. Let me tell you why. Uh, look at the end of verse 19. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? So Assyria, uh, which is Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, afflicted everybody. They're evil. Uh, they were, uh, they're, they're evil. They were an equal opportunist in handing out evil. They destroyed every nation. They were feared and hated by all. And so when it was heard that the thumb of Assyria had been lifted and they'd been destroyed, all the nations clapped their hands. Everybody rejoice. I can take you to Revelation 7 verse 9, and we can read that in heaven, in the glory of heaven, there's going to be a multitude from every tribe and language and nation and people who will gather around the throne of the Lamb and worship Him. They will rejoice. They will clap their hands. Hands. Why? Because our enemy will be put to death. Now, our enemy is not Nineveh. Hey, do you know our enemy is not each other? How many of you know that? Your enemy is not flesh and blood, right? Have any couples in here? Couples, do y'all ever argue or fight? What I've learned with, with living with women, this is what I've learned when li- living with women. And, and, and I read this, I think on Twitter I saw this, and I thought, man, that explains this. Just so well. What I've learned about women is when they tell you that they'll be ready in five minutes, to help you think through that, just think, okay, just think of a a football game with five minutes left and three timeouts. That's what that means, right? So we're not fighting each other. We're not. We're we're fighting the, the, the enemy, which is the flesh, sin, death, the grave, the world, that's what we're fighting. And so, verse 19 tells us that one day this unceasing evil will be destroyed and we will clap our hands and rejoice. And the good news is Nahum wrote this as if it had already happened. Why? Because God is fighting for us. In other words, in Christ, there is certain victory. We've already won. God, in the end, he wins. He will have the last word. Mother Earth is not going to have the last word. Father Time is not going to have the last word. The circle of life is not going to have the last word. God's word is the last word. He has one already. We've just not experienced it yet. The already not yet. And so he is fighting for us. We don't have to fight uh, for our salvation. God has already accomplished it in Christ. He fights for us. He doesn't fight against us. Can you say amen? All right, lastly, let's wrap this up. Last one here. God is for us, bringing the good news to those who are far from him. Now, I'm I'm about to read something that if you will grasp it, the Holy Spirit will transform the way you think about Romans chapter 10. I'm telling you. This is incredible stuff here at the end of, of Nahum. So God is for us bringing the good news to those who are far from him. That's the last assurance we can know about that God will clear the not guilty but not the guilty. Go back to chapter 1 verse 15. I didn't skip it on purpose. Chapter 1 verse 15 of Nahum reads this way. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who what church? Who what? Brings what? What? Where have you heard that before? Where have you read that before? Romans chapter 10, right? So go to Romans 10. Go over to Romans chapter 10. Uh, take a right in your Bibles and go to Romans 10. I'm going to start in verse 14. And listen to the word of God. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how will they hear unless someone, without someone preaching them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? Somebody say written. As it is written, somebody say written. Listen, as it is written, where? In Nahum 115. As it is written in Nahum 115, Paul says this, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, think about it. You have Assyria with everybody under its thumb, okay? And then there's news for all Assyria's victims that Assyria has fallen, right? They've been destroyed. And so messengers are sent out. That's what 115 is all about. Messengers are sent out. They wore sandals and dirt and dust all over their feet. Their feet were smelly and dirty and ugly, okay? Just like feet are. And yet, when they went to tell the nations that Assyria had fallen, their message was beautiful. Their feet not so much. The messengers not so much. But the message was beautiful right and so with that when you have that context when you read Romans 10 and understand okay this was said in Nahum's day that all those victims of Assyria's evil were celebrating worshiping welcoming calling this the feet of those who brought this good news beautiful feet they're beautiful why well listen we've got a lot of messengers in this room if you're in Christ you're a messenger and not a lot of you're beautiful okay but your message is gorgeous Your message couldn't be better. Your message is beautiful. Because we are proclaiming to a world, not that God has delivered us from Nineveh, not not that God has delivered us from Assyria, not that God has delivered us from Egypt, but that God has delivered us from sin, death, and the grave. Could there be better news? No, it is good news, and God is for us, bringing this good news to those who are far from him. So what does that mean for us today today? Listen, there are some 7.5 billion people in our world and at a rate of 155,000 people dying every day, that works out to being three quarters of a million people who die in a week's time without Christ. Three quarters of a million people will die in this next work week without Christ. And some of those people are at your school and they're in your home and they're in your workplace and they're in this room today. They may be sitting right next to you today. They're watching via live stream or television. You're going to rub shoulders with them all week long. And here's what Matt Queen has said If a man hears the gospel and receives it, God is responsible. If a man hears the gospel and rejects it, he is responsible. If he never hears the gospel, I am responsible. We have no excuses, we have the good news. God is for us, bringing it to those who are far from him. So let's get after it, church. Let's get after it. Because here's the good news. God will clear the not guilty. How are we not guilty? We put our faith in Christ. On the cross, he took our sin. He took our shame. He took our grief and our guilt. And he was buried after he died with it. And on the third day when he rose from the dead, he defeated it all. He put it all to death. And he offers that free gift of life today to anyone who whosoever will believe. Let me tell you something. If you're listening, you can believe. You can be saved today. So let me encourage you to come to one of our pastors and say, yes, I'm ready to trust Christ today. For the rest of us, who is it you need to share with this week? Who do you need to go and share with this week? Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. God. We.